Now, when I'm very good and do as I am told, I'm Mama's little angel and Papa says I'm good as gold. The stars are ageless. You brought this on yourself. Welcome to the Finer Girls Podcast. I'm Anna Bogutskaya, your podcast host. And in this series of the Final Girls, I'll be looking at one of the most controversial and commercial subgenres of horror. An intersection of three of my most favorite things, classic Hollywood, horror films, and movie stars. Over the next few weeks, I'm journeying through the genre that has been called Haxploitation, Psycho Bitty Horror, and Grand Damn Guignol. But whatever you want to call it, the one film that comes up whenever we talk about hack horror is the 1962 masterpiece, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, starring Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. The film's success reinvigorated not just Davis and Crawford's careers, but led to a decade of formulaic horror films that used the name recognition of classic Hollywood movie stars to attract viewers. It also infamously gave us one of the most enduring feuds in movie history, which has been catalogued, exaggerated, and blown out of proportion in books, articles, and even a whole Ryan Murphy TV show. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is arguably the apex mountain of haxploitation. The film and its cultural influence is just too large for a single episode, so I'm splitting its story into two. This week, I'll chat about the film, the horror of it, and its two lead performances. And next week, I'll tackle its impact on Hollywood, the infamous feud between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, and what happened to their careers after Baby Jane's success, including their aborted next collaboration on Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Before we begin, let me credit my sources. Alongside numerous articles and essays about the film, I've primarily used Crazy Old Ladies by Carolyn Young, who you'll be hearing from in this episode, Fasten Your Seatbelts, The Passionate Life of Betty Davis by Lawrence J. Quirk, Mother Goddamn by Whitney Stein, annotated by Betty Davis, This and That, a memoir written by Betty Davis, Conversations with Joan Crawford by Roy Newquist, and Betty and Joan by Sean Considine. Throughout this episode, you'll also be hearing from filmmaker and actress Hannah Barlow, as well as clips from Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and interviews with both Davis and Crawford later on in their careers. And for anyone who has missed out on the 1962 banger that is Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, be warned. I will spoil the entire thing. And if you haven't rewatched the film in a while, go ahead and pause this and go watch it and come back.
letter to daddy His address is heaven above In a piece published in the New York Times in 1962, their then-film critic Bosley Crowther called the co-leads of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane a pair of formidable freaks playing two profoundly jealous has-beens. That is certainly one way of describing the story, and it shows you the grim condescension that surrounded the film, despite all of its financial success and its five Oscar nominations. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is the story of two aging sisters, both actresses. Blanche, played by Joan Crawford, is a former movie star who has been paralyzed from the waist down after a car accident. Her sister Jane, that's Betty Davis's character, is a former child vaudeville star whose stardom did not extend into her adulthood. Jane, importantly, is also the one who was behind the wheel of the car at the time of Blanche's accident. Blaming herself for her sister's condition, Jane has been her caretaker ever since the accident. Together, they live in a big old Hollywood mansion, forgotten by most and glued together by mutual hatred, with only their housekeeper Elvira as a regular visitor. Desperately trying to engineer her career comeback, Jane tortures her sister, taunting her and locking her away with the intention of starving her to death to prevent Blanche from selling the house and moving away from Jane, all the while convinced that she's going to become a huge star again. What do you want this time? Who was on the telephone? None of your business. What were you ringing for? I'm hungry, Jane. Well, of course you're hungry. You didn't eat your dinner. That's why you're hungry. But you forgot my breakfast. I didn't forget your breakfast. I didn't bring your breakfast because you didn't eat your dinner. Ha! You know, we're right back where we started. When I was on the stage, you had to depend on me for everything. Even the food you ate came from me. Now you have to depend on me for your food again. So you see, we're right back where we started. Baby Jane is the quintessential hack horror. It expands on a lot of the elements that were already introduced into the genre by Sunset Boulevard. The isolated, opulent Hollywood mansion. The actresses who have lost their footing and have been forgotten by the industry. Two former glorious movie stars of the screen that have turned to a role that no only does not disguise or shy away from their age, but actually exaggerates it. The film is a masterpiece of Hollywood horror and has given us one of the most fascinating, juicy and overblown feuds in Hollywood history, which I'll dissect in next week's episode. The film would simply not be what it is without its two lead actresses. Polar opposites in every single way, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis were, despite their many differences, two titans of the first half of movie history. But by the time that baby Jane rolled around, they were both over 50, bored and threatened by irrelevancy. 
Their work on the film was the blueprint for a decade of Baby Jane ripoffs and created two of the most ferociously unhinged and tragic characters ever seen in a horror film. Before we go any further, let's get a snapshot of who Joan Crawford and Betty Davis were as movie stars and where they were in their careers when they made Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. When asked about Whatever Happened to Baby Jane years after the film was made, Joan Crawford quipped, do you have to exhume that one? Christ, I still have nightmares about it. Journalist Roy Newquist was present at large parts of the making of Baby Jane and collated his interviews with the star into his book Conversations with Joan Crawford. Possibly the closest to a candid portrait of the movie star in her own words. Certainly a lot more than her autobiography, A Portrait of Joan, which... Although it boasts on the back cover that Baby Jane made her the most talked about star in America, has literally no mention of her experiences making the movie. Joan Crawford is, bar none, one of the greatest movie stars of classic Hollywood, with a career that spanned four decades, a legendary work ethic, and an almost preternatural ability to suss out what the audience wanted from her, and an ability to adapt to the zeitgeist. She was, to put it in contemporary terms, the Madonna of her time. In the 1920s, when she started out, she was a flapper, a party girl. In the 30s, she played tons of rags to riches go-getters. In the 40s, even as she herself turned 40, which is a retirement age for actresses in Hollywood, and with her contemporaries like Norma Shearer and Greta Garbo stepping away before being deemed too old by their industry, she transformed herself once more, making melodramas and women's pictures about lonely but tough older women who wanted to find love. It's in this decade, in 1945, when she won her first and only Oscar for Mildred Pierce. An MGM girly since her very start, Joan was deemed too old and wasn't get, being given enough interesting roles, so she jumped ship to another studio, Warner Brothers, and then left them too to pursue her own projects and go freelance. She would find novels that would make for good movies, with a media role for herself, of course, and forgo her salary for a percentage of the profits. She had a few successes like this, like Sudden Fear, and she was also the person who found the Henry Farrell novel that would become her comeback. Now, there's two accounts here. Joan said that she was the one who found the novel Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, bought three copies and sent one to Nicholas Ray, another one to Alfred Hitchcock, and the third to Robert Aldrich, who she had worked with a few years prior on the melodrama Autumn Leaves. Aldrich was the one who optioned the rights first and suggested casting her and Catherine Hepburn. At that time, probably the, the only actress of a certain age who had no trouble finding work. By her account, Joan was the one who pushed for Betty Davis. 
The other side of the story comes from Robert Aldrich himself, who told the New York Times that Joan had urged him for years to find a project for her to work with Betty Davis, and that there was no other actresses in consideration for the roles of Blanche and Jane Hudson. Crawford, who was 56 or 57 at the time, depending on sources, had not made a film in three years. Because of her name recognition and her last husband, Pepsi executive Alfred Steele, she had been elected to the board of Pepsi and was the first woman to have that position. She took this job very seriously and made Pepsi into her brand, making sure that there was Pepsi vending machines available on every set that she worked on. Joan struggled with alcohol abuse, and it was particularly bad during the filming of Baby Jane. So when I say that she always had a Pepsi next to her, the Pepsi usually also had vodka in it. When Alfred died, though, he left behind a surprising amount of debt. Joan had to sell her LA home and move to New York City, and by the time Baby Jane came around, Whoever it was that found that book originally, she was, in her own words, lonely, worse than lonely, bored out of my skull, and needed the money. Betty Davis, meanwhile, was not out of work, but she was not doing her best work. She had launched her career in the 30s with, quote, bitch harrowing characters that she could really get her teeth into. Betty was fearless, and from her scene-stealing performance in Of Human Bondage onwards, she made a name for herself as a great actor with a capital A. She was driven, ambitious, and did not mind changing her appearance if the character demanded it. She was the first actor to recruit 10 Best Actress nominations. She was the first one to recruit 10 Best Actress Oscar nominations. And she was also one of the very first actors to break away from a studio to go freelance in pursuit of better roles. Despite a resurgence in relevancy with All About Eve in 1950, which I spoke about briefly in last week's episode, her career declined during this decade. Later, she called the 50s her black period. The film roles she had taken on since All About Eve were not as substantial, and she started doing more work in television and theater, as well as trying to dedicate more time to being a wife and a mother. But by 1960, her fourth marriage was on its way to divorce, and she was doing work that misused her talents, such as musical theater, which was never her strong suit. So by the time that the Baby Jane script came to her via surprise visit by Joan Crawford to her dressing room after a matinee performance of a Broadway show, Betty's name was considered box office poison, so much so that exhibitors did not want to give her top billing on posters so as to not scare away customers. Here's Betty on a talk show in 1962 with severe laryngitis, which is why she sounds so hoarse. Uh, you and this is kind of a victory, uh, a terrific victory for Robert Aldrich, who had the idea of Miss Crawford and me. And wherever he went with this film uh, to raise money to make it, the Hollywood people would say, those two old 
broads, I wouldn't give you a dime. Uh, but for him, I guess the two old broads would have been recast. And uh, we, we owe him a great deal. And I, I must say, um, we're not feeling charmingly victorious. We're a little closer. You shouldn't get Joan and Betty were radically different actresses and very different kinds of movie stars too. But what they had in common was that by 1962, they were both in need of a comeback. So when it was announced that they would play sisters in a new film, the press went wild. Imagine if in 2023, Britney Spears and Rihanna announced that they were doing a tour together. That's the level of hype that I'm talking about. Despite this, Robert Aldrich, the director, struggled to find financing for Baby Jane, with many companies rejecting the star pairing for being too old. Jack Warner, he of Warner Brothers, initially rejected the project, saying, I wouldn't give you one dime for those two washed up old bitches. But after financing was secured, he did agree to distribute the film although he would not let them film on the Warner Brothers lot. Just, again, a moment for the disrespect that after both their names, especially Betty's, had built Warner Brothers for years, and I mean years, decades. But I digress. After financing was secured, the production held a whole ass press conference for Betty and Joan to ceremoniously sign their contracts. They both agreed to pay cuts. Joan got $30,000 and 15% of the net profits, while Betty got $60,000 and 10% of the profits. At this event, someone accidentally put Betty's contract in front of Joan though, and she spotted that Betty had also gotten living expenses, which Joan promptly demanded to be included in her contract too. At this event, Betty referred to herself as an actress and to Joan as a movie star, a distinction that would not go unnoticed by Joan. So everything was in place and baby Jane was to be shot in less than a month in Los Angeles. It was a low-budget production, and there was a lot of cost-cutting. The film cost less than $1 million and was to be shot in one month and previewed to the public in two. Joan, despite being the architect of the whole thing, was ambivalent about the quality of the film they were making. On the set of the film, she's quoted as saying, I held my own against Garber and Grand Hotel. I've done the same with Davis on this one. I've worked my butt off and so has everyone else. But isn't it a shame? Grand Hotel was a classic and this is a freak show. Come and see him, Joan and Betty. Maybe they should put us in cages when they promote the picture. Miserable. 
costume and makeup play a huge role in whatever happened to Baby Jane, as they do with women's pictures and horror cinema alike. Betty insisted on bringing on board cinematographer Ernie Holler, who had photographed her for years when she was under contract with Warners and had always made her look beautiful. Now, though, she instructed him to make her look as horrible as possible. Baby Jane is, after all, a horror movie about vanity to a degree, both that of Blanche and Jane Hudson, as well as Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. In her book Crazy Old Ladies, author Carolyn Young recalls that in Henry Farrell's novel, Jane was described as a squat pudding of a woman in a soiled cotton dress patterned with faded lilacs and daffodils. In the film, the makeup for Baby Jane was grotesque by design. Betty, who took the character design very much into her own hands, wanted to look like Mary Pickford in Decay. She smeared a thick white base on her face, coarsely drew really thick black eyeliner around her eyes, drew a cupid's bow mouth in bright red and a heart-shaped beauty mark. She felt that Jane would never take off the makeup from the previous day. She'd just layer more on every day. When it came to costumes, there were two distinct outfits. Jane wearing frumpy house dresses as she potted around the house, taking reluctant care of Blanche. And the second side of her was her baby Jane persona. Grown-up versions of what a little girl would wear, which would turn sleazy as she was plotting her career comeback. The costume designer Norma Koch deliberately made the dress half a size too small so that Jane would look like, quote, one of those old chorus girls coming apart at the seams. She also, funnily, wore the classic Joan Crawford chase me, fuck me pumps. And it wasn't the only Crawford-related dress item. Jane's wig, a blonde number with baby doll ringlets, was rumored, but not verified, to be from an old Joan Crawford musical from the 1930s. The entire costume was Jane's archaic idea of sexiness. There is a very unsettling shot in the middle of the film where Jane looks directly into the camera and layers on lipstick, looking at us directly through the lens as if to say, look at what you made me do. On Ryan Murphy's TV show Feud, when Betty shows up in her baby Jane look, people are stunned into silence and then slow clap their approval. In reality, Aldrich was horrified and tried to dissuade Betty from going forward with it. The author of the book, though, Henry Farrell, told her in the first week of shooting that she looked exactly as he had pictured Baby Jane. Joan, meanwhile, refused to uglify herself. She wanted to wear her own negligees, which were all low-cut and revealing. She wanted to wear short dresses to show off the famous Crawford legs. The costume designer and her eventually compromised, with Kosh pointing out that a paralyzed recluse would probably not have lovely, expensive, fashionable clothes to wear and that she'd likely not be showing off her legs. They compromised on a high-necked nightgown and a monk robe-type dress, which Joan wore with a belt to show off her skinny waist. Betty disapproved, 
and scoffed in her memoirs at Joan's insistence on remaining glamorous and beautiful, even if the character seemed to contradict that. Joan was aware and said, My character in Jane was a bigger star and more beautiful than her sister. Once you've been as famous as Blanche Hudson was, you don't slip back and become a freak like Miss Davis preferred to see her character. Blanche also had class. Blanche had glamour. Blanche was a legend. I mean, yes, but there is an eeriness to Blanche. Her far beatific voice, her martyrdom while sitting on a huge secret that we'll talk about later, and her willingness to gaslight her sister for years is just if not as fucked up as Jane's grotesque arrested development. And Joan's own desire to perform the part of a movie star, her need to be glamorous no matter what the situation, bleeds into her performance as Blanche, and it works, I think, to the film's advantage. Through the character design and through the performances by both Davis and Crawford, we see that Blanche and Jane are each stuck in a different era, the era where they were a star. At the start of the film, Jane's name is in shiny lights, a full theater assembled to watch this little girl tap dance and sing while her sister watches on from the shadows, resentment brewing as Jane gets everything she wants, and has dolls with her likeness sold outside the theater. Which, by the way, creepy. Always creepy. Why do we make dolls of people? When she grows up though, Jane is stuck in this doll-like image of herself. Now in her 50s and a heavy drinker, she's just as bratty as she was when she was a kid, minus any endearment. When the film's title credits roll around, they appear over broken baby Jane doll. While Jane enjoys her early stardom, Blanche seethes and vows that she won't forget her sister's treatment. Later on, with vaudeville replaced by the movies, Jane can't quite make it while Blanche becomes a sensation. And she includes it in her contract that any movie that she does has to hire her sister as well. Which on the surface seems like a kindness, but really, it's a way to rub her success in her sister's face. After Blanche's accident, Jane becomes her sister's caretaker, and she shuffles around the house, dragging her feet like a child being asked to do chores, delighting in pettiness. In several really unsettling scenes, this film does this weird thing where, when Jane mocks her sister, Joan Crawford's real voice comes out of Betty Davis's mouth, and that's just because Davis could never manage to properly imitate Crawford. It is shocking still to this day how acidic and ugly and mean this film is. I'm not talking about elements of physicality or beauty, but rather the very spirit of these characters. Both Jane and Blanche are spiteful creatures, cursing each other and seething with hate for one another and themselves. It is a bitter, bitter horror film about excess and vanity and obsession. 
the film uses footage of the real-life Betty and Joan, which further blurs the lines between actresses and characters they play and would become a staple in the haxploitation horror genre. Here's author Carolyn Young on actresses who play actresses. This, um, I suppose the idea of the actress, when an actress plays an actress, I think there's an element of humour to it, I think because she's sending up um, the profession. The profession is seen as a bit sort of artificial and, and silly in a way. But also I think uh, an actress's value lies in her in her looks. And so it creates this idea, this tension with the idea that she's afraid of getting older because with that, what she has valued in her life, which is her career, is is under threat. So... I think that's kind of that, I think there's, it's ripe for, for creating films about it because it has that tension of, of um, it's about a woman who's, who's, I suppose in some ways has sacrificed her own personal life and went for her career and now she doesn't have her career and she likely doesn't have a good personal life either. So, And here is the, the weird relationship that I have with the hack horror films. So while the films want us to ogle at them as though them having aged is some sort of failing of character, I can't help but be mesmerized by them. So in their own way, these hackpotation films, and none of them better than Baby Jane, are really an exploration of the vanity that underpins stardom. To be a star, you have to play the part. While arguably Betty Davis's vanity is all about her talent and raging devotion to the craft of acting, Joan Crawford's was wrapped up in the very things that had made her into a movie star. Her looks, her long legs, her big eyes, her perfectly drawn-on eyebrows. She had undergone a metamorphosis, decade upon decade, transforming into the perfect movie star every time. Her job was movie star. Here's Betty Davis herself in an interview with American broadcaster Barbara Walters talking about how that vanity got in the way during the shooting of Baby Jane. Yes, her vanity got in the way. Yes. Want to tell us about it? To tell it in your book. Well... She had three sets of falsies. And uh, as you know, when any of us are lying flat down, these do not stand up straight like this. They kind of go to the side, usually in there. I think even Dolly Parton's probably do too. <laughs> uh, I was supposed to run and fall on her. I was almost knocked out, I have to admit. Yeah, she insisted on, on that. I'm wearing, I'm wearing her yeah, that part, My vain vanity, that kind of vanity. Yes. Well, she was used to appearing as a beautiful person. It was hard for her to change. It was hard for her to take her nail polish off. It was hard for her to not have it. As a matter of fact, she said to all that you've taken everything else away from me. I will not, not give up these. But that was her training. Mm -hmm. And then I say, she came a long way, the little girl who came from where she came. This I will never take away from her. She did. 
And in Baby Jane, she's playing a recluse, an actress who had been at the height of her fame and would rather be shuttered away from the world than to be seen as disabled or less than how she was remembered on screen. Blanche refuses to be seen, although she spends a lot of her time indoors watching herself on reruns of her old movies on TV. There's something really sad and also a bit damning about Blanche's pride, about her interest in her fans and being remembered. But the whole thing about this film is that both her and Jane want to be remembered. But because Jane's moment was on the stage, the only thing that remains of her stardom are those grotesque baby Jane dolls. While the reruns of Blanche's old movies create a new interest in her, an interest that infuriates Jane and leads her to be petty and mean to her sister, hiding fan mail from her and not letting the neighbor interact with her. In this way, Baby Jane's stunt casting comments on celebrity and acting as a profession that is both revered and sort of dismissed. Here's director and actor Hannah Barlow on the horror that underpins Baby Jane and how it affected her own interest in acting. So whatever happened to Baby Jane, I saw with my mom in our living room for the first time. I think I was somewhere between nine or 12. And yeah, <laughs> I remember like it, we just turned it on and it was on and we just were so engrossed with it. And then after the film, we were both like exhilarated and talked about it for ages. Um, and it's had this profound effect on me. Um, it's, it's one of those films from my childhood that has just stuck to me and clung to me. And I felt so seen in both of those characters in Jane and Blanche and also the fear of aging as a woman and the fear of becoming irrelevant. Um, I just feel like that film sears through that specific fear that we have as women um, of becoming forgotten um, and, and losing importance and value and also the gaslighting of getting older, of growing older in a patriarchal world. Um, yeah. Yeah, as you start sagging and you can't defy gravity anymore, you, you become invisible and wretched and um, you're just left with your your disappointment and, and a fear of death and bitterness. And I, I think that's why I just, I love this movie so much. I want to give props to a character that I seldom see discussed in conversations around Baby Jane, obviously very dominated by the figures of Betty and Joan. And that's Elvira, the housekeeper, played by Maidy Norman, who not only is the only sensible person in the household, but sees the weirdness that's going on and calls out baby Jane more than once. However, she does pay the ultimate price for getting involved in the affairs of the Hudson sisters. 
when Elvira opens the attic bedroom to find Blanche tied up and silenced, she is savagely murdered by Jane. Aldrich keeps the shot on Blanche's face as we hear Jane's blow strike. It is a brutal film, not just because of its cruelty, but because of these moments that are there to rival some of the most brutal scenes of films of this time, like Psycho or Peeping Tom. I want to know what's going on around here. Richard, you said you didn't have your key. Just so happens that I did. So now you can tell me what you mean by locking Miss Blanche in her room. Well, this isn't Blanche's house. This is my house, but I can do what I like. Doesn't make a bit of difference whose house it is. You've got to act like a grown woman the same as everybody else. Suppose there'd been a fire or something, Miss Blanche, locked up in a room like that. Well, there wasn't. You open that door and stop all this nonsense. No. And give me the key. No. She, she, she's asleep. I, I gave her a pill. You did, huh? Then you better give me that key and be quick about it. I won't and you can't make me. The scariest part of whatever happened to baby Jane is the delusion that's at play. Jane's sense of reality starts crumbling when she finds her namesake doll in the basement, with Davis performing the little girl dance again, singing that grotesque letter to daddy song. But as she steps under a light, her face, which is not that of a little girl, reminds her of her real age and where she is, trapped in this old house with a sister who hates her and who she hates. It is shocking, still to this day and every time I watch it, how acidic and ugly and mean this film is. And I'm talking about anything to do with aging or physicality or beauty, but rather the very spirit of these characters. Both Jane and Blanche are such spiteful creatures, cursing each other and seething with hate for one another and for themselves. And here is the genius of whatever happened to baby Jane, and the performances by both Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, and what all Haxploitation films would misunderstand going forward. As much as the conversation and the writing and the press and the And the supposed legacy of this film is in the fact that these faded movie stars are playing faded movie stars. And isn't it terrible and narcissistic that these actresses cannot deal with the natural process of aging? There's nothing faded about neither Betty or Joan. They are ferocious on screen. They are aggressive either physically with one of them bludgeoning another woman to death or carrying the other one or literally kicking the shit of one another as happens in one scene. But there is something so terrifying about seeing that movie star quality, that presence that both of them had and maintained for decades in movies applied to these characters that are so brittle and so warped with bitterness. All right, Blanche Hudson! Miss Big Fat Movie Star! Miss Rotten Stinking Actress! Press a button, ring a bell, and you think the whole 
The big twist of the film comes at the end, once Jane has dragged out a starving Blanche away from the house and onto the beach, surrendering completely to her delusions. It is then that Blanche confesses that she was the one who caused her own accident, not Jane, and that for decades she had let Jane carry the blame for her accident. I think for ages I held the view that Blanche was just lying to Jane at the end of the movie. But I truly, like, for some reason I felt like she was just telling Jane that she was the one who drove her over and and ruined her career and made her and gaslit her and made her paranoid and believed that she tried to kill her. But now I'm like, oh, no, she she fully is the villain. Blanche is fully is the villain of the movie. And she's she's worse than Jane in a sense. And you you know that because of the, you know, the first five minutes of the film, you see exactly that cunning little child saying, I'm going to, I'm never going to forget the way that Jane treated me. And I make you waste your whole life thinking you'd crippled me. Please stop. You didn't do it, Jane. I did it myself. Already out of touch with reality, this confession breaks Jane completely. And it is an astonishing scene that plays out completely on Betty Davis's face. I'm not sure Jane in that moment even realizes what Blanche's confession means. Her face turns slowly, her eyes just two black scribbles of of eyeliner and confusion. She's all smiles, and her voice seems lighter, less sinister, and more childlike. She hops away, leaving her sister wasting away and likely dying, wrapped up in a blanket in the middle of a beach and surrounded by people in their bathing suits. She hops away just like she did as a little girl at the very start of the film when she wanted an ice cream. And thinking that the crowd surrounding her is there to see her and not to apprehend her, she does her little dance again. Writing about the film and her memoir, This and That, Betty Davis remembered this moment well. When I danced on the beach in the famous scene that ends the film, and my face seemed to glow as I twirled up to the ice cream stand, people swore I had changed my makeup. I had not changed a thing. I changed inwardly, and it reflected on my face. After filming ended, Joan Crawford went back to New York, and Betty Davis returned to Connecticut. Joan was exhausted physically, mentally, and emotionally. After making Baby Jane, it dawned on her that it was a good film, the best that she had made in years, and that, quote, the great actress had not totally defeated the mere movie star. The furor around the both of them and the constant rumors about their supposed feuding on set became the stuff of Hollywood legend, 
And there's a million stories that are very fun to read about, but likely not very true. All of these rumors were exploiting both of their names and trying to challenge their legendary work ethics and professionalism. In her memoir, Davis wrote that Joan was a pro. She was always punctual, always knew her lines. I will always thank her for giving me the opportunity to play the part of baby Jane Hudson. I'm not saying they liked each other. It's pretty well documented that they did not. Theirs was a strained kind of mutual admiration. Davis admired Crawford's strength and tenacity and her ability to emerge from a squalid background and transform herself into a star, almost out of sheer will. And Crawford admired Davis's talent and her ability to transform herself into her roles. They only made one film together, but for the rest of their lives, during every interview they ever did, they were asked about each other. Here's Joan herself being interviewed on television in 1968, and you guessed it, the second question she got asked was about baby Jane. And one of the pictures that I saw that I'll never forget you in was Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. What was it like to play opposite Betty Davis in a film of this magnitude? I would think it was the most uh, rewarding experience in the world. As a matter of fact, I put the deal together. Did you really? Oh. I'd wanted to work with her since uh, we were at Warner Brothers together. And... Uh, I wanted to do Ethan Frome with her. I thought we would be great in mm -hmm. it with uh, Raymond Massey. Oh. Well, you were great in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Well, it was a good <laughs> box office chemistry. Betty Davis and Joan Crawford would be forever linked, just like Blanche and Jane Hudson. And whether they knew it or not, this little horror film that they made in less than a month would affect not just them, but their whole generation of movie stars. But there's still so much more to get into in the saga around whatever happened to Baby Jane. Next week, I'll be covering the release of the film, its legacy, the Oscars incident, and the next big hack horror film, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Thank you so much for listening to the Final Ghost podcast and to our series on hags. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Anna Be Demented and do dive into our previous seasons where I've covered witches, vampires, monsters and teen horror so far. Thank you so much to Caroline and, and Hannah for their contributions for this episode and I hope you'll join me next week where we'll continue talking about whatever happened to baby Jane and the next hag horror film, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte.